You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Christopher Ferguson. Um, Chris, Chris is the author of two books, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, um, three books, the historical mystery novel Suicide Kings, and How Madness Shaped History, uh, which was, was um, I think, was just published. I read a pre-print uh, version, which you kindly sent me, but I believe it's now out, right? It is, it is out, yeah. It's been out for a little... But it's, it's a COVID book. It's been out for much of COVID, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. We need to update your Ario bio, which okay. says it's, <laughs> it's forthcoming. Um, it was written during the Trump administration, but it's been published a little bit more um, recently. And Chris is a professor of psychology at Stetson University in Florida. He is a frequent contributor to ARIO magazine. I'm going to link to Chris's author page in the show notes. And also everything that we mention in the course of the podcast, we will put links to that in the show notes to this um, to this episode. So Chris, please feel relaxed if you're referring to something. Don't worry about spelling everything out, etc. I will make sure all the references are there in the show notes for us. Cool. And welcome. Well, thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to be here. It's my pleasure. So I hope that we will go on to talk about your book and also your work on um, video games, Dungeons and Dragons, etc. But first of all, um, you have recently tendered your resignation from the APA, the American Psychological Association. And you've written a piece for Quillette explaining your reasons, and I will link to that in the notes. Um, but perhaps you could, um, I know you had several reasons. A few of them were more specific to your subject, and there was one big overarching, more general reason. But let's hear, I think there are really three or four reasons in total, and maybe we could begin by talking about those. Maybe you could begin by telling listeners why you've why you've taken this decision. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, you know, the American Psychological Association is basically our professional guild. You know, so as uh, clinical psychologists uh, and research psychologists, we pay a certain amount of money every year to be represented by the American Psychological Association, and they're basically our sort of you know public facing uh, organization. So they tend to present themselves as speaking for psychological science, speaking for good clinical practice, uh, and all of that sort of stuff. And I've been a member, I mean, sort of off and on, I've been a member probably since I was in graduate school uh, with, with a fair amount of years off. 
Um, but sort of consistently, probably for the last decade or so, I've been a member. And then I was elected a fellow some maybe six or seven years ago. Um, and, and, you know, my concerns about the APA, some of them have been fairly longstanding. Some of them have been kind of specific to my field uh, related to violence in video games, particularly. So they have a statement linking violence in video games to aggression, not violent crime, you know, in, in fairness to them, but to aggression. And, you know, my read of the evidence is that the evidence really isn't there to make that kind of declaration. Uh, and, and I think that that is kind of a consistent pattern that I've seen with a lot of the statements made by the American Psychological Association is that they kind of make these very conclusive statements about a bunch of different research fields, even when if you kind of look at the research, the research really isn't always as clear as the APA has made it out to, you know, to be. So that's kind of a, a longstanding kind of consistent concern with them. Um, to Just to throw a little extra spice into the conversation, maybe about six or seven years ago, they also were I don't know if caught is the right word, but, you know, it, it was revealed that they had changed their ethics code to allow psychologists to participate in harsh interrogations in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, so that was like a major uh, scandal for the APA at the uh, at the time. Um, and, and I maintain my membership at that point. But that, that was another point I was very close to resigning. Um, I figured I would stay on and, and, and try to sort of, you know, as the cliche goes, help fix from within uh, and such. And, and my more recent concern over the last maybe three to four years and particularly becoming uh, very acute after the, the murder of George Floyd is the sense of the APA becoming increasingly, you know, perhaps for lack of a better word, sort of a woke, you know, non-science, you know, uh, organization that is sort of captured by the ideology of the far left. It doesn't, I'm not saying they don't necessarily mean well, um, but they're now saying things about like policing and race in the United States and other related issues that are, are not factually true. And in many cases may actually inflame racial tensions and cause other kinds of problems. Uh, and so I'm worried at this point in many different areas that the sort of, you know, public statements being made by the APA are causing more harm than good at this point. And, you know, having tried to sort of influence this for some number of years, it doesn't seem like it's very possible to change this course in the short term. So I thought there was greater value in bringing attention to this somewhat publicly and, um, you know, alerting people that, when they hear these public statements made by the American Psychological Association, whether that has to do with violence in video games or it has to do with race and policing or things like that, that what they're saying in many cases is not factually true. Mm. Yeah, you. I mean, I I'm really struck by the way in which um, uh, so many organizations are, are now in lockstep on this issue. Mm-hmm. And are making exactly the same kind of declarations and seem to feel that there is only one issue now to be tackled. And that issue is systemic structural racism. And therefore, they need to dedicate themselves to that rather than to the thing that they used to stand for, say, the defense of free speech um, or due process or scientific integrity or environmental protections, 
I'm hearing instead exactly the same kind of few sentences recycled over and over. Um, our organization now focuses on instead of those things or in addition to those things or, uh, you know, but our primary focus is now combating systemic racism. I feel a bit discombobulated by this sort of monoculture. Uh, whether or not, whether or not, you know, it's true that systemic racism is a very real thing and needs to be combated. That's kind of even a separate issue for me. It's, oh, well, if everybody's combating systemic racism, who is going to value these other things that are also extremely important? Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, yeah, I think it's not even so much necessarily that, you know, these organizations are, are speaking about these things. And, I, and actually in the Quillette piece, I did talk about the British Psychological Society as well. Um, who seem to be experiencing some of the same, you know, sorts of issues. So yeah, this definitely seems to be something that is not limited to the APA. It seems to be, you know, occurring across a lot of, uh, you know, I guess you can say left-leaning, but, you know, theoretically science or medical organizations. Um, you know, so certainly the topic of race and racism is an, is an important topic, and, you know, we should be talking about it, but it's also a very complicated, nuanced, you know, sort of, of issue. And there are a lot of misunderstandings and even myths about what's happening in the United States or happening across the world. And it would be valuable to have an organization or organizations, you know, very cautiously lead us to these conversations, keep them data focused, um, you know, and, and, and try to help bring people together. Uh, across some of these divides uh, and figure out how to do that and sort of you know, help resolve racial discord and, you know, point towards the evidence of what we can do. If we're going to look at criminal justice reform, for instance, what are the steps that make the most sense uh, in some of those areas? Um, but, you know, instead, what we're hearing is, as like you said, it's kind of this, I guess, kind of cliche jargon um, that everybody seems to be repeating. So the American Psychological Association talked about you know, this sort of pandemic of racism, um, which obviously was borrowing language from COVID-19. So that right there for me is kind of a red flag that, you know, everybody's talking, everything's a pandemic now because we're in COVID-19. Uh, you know, the, the, the truth is the evidence is that if, whether you're talking about explicit racism or implicit racism, although that that is a, you know, controversial concept by itself, but you know, the evidence suggests that both of these things have been declining over time in the United States, you know, and that's an important data point, you know, to bring out. Uh, doesn't mean that, you know, everything's a racial utopia necessarily. So, uh, but, you know, the, the APA kind of dove onto this sort of language sort of implying that we're still in, in 1955, you know, pretty much. They kind of talked about in one of their quotes, this idea, you can't go to the mailbox, you know, without getting shot if you're black. And it's not, that's not true at all. You know, and um, that kind of language obviously can inflame, you know, racial tensions and also cause a lot of, you know, potentially a lot of anxiety and trauma in minority communities. Particularly, these things are not actually, you know, evidence-based, data-based kinds of statements that are, um, you know, being made. So it does sometimes seem like, yeah, I mean, a lot of these kind of like science slash medical organizations, you know, which tend to lean left, you know, most people who are in academia tend to be liberals, um, uh, they seem like they kind of you know lost their minds, you know, to, to some extent. It's not that the issue is unimportant. We should be talking about some of these things, but you know, we should be talking about them from a database perspective, um, and trying to bring people together rather than simply repeating you know talking points that you know about eight percent of people in the United States actually 
believe, but they happen to be some of the loudest 8% of, uh, of individuals. So, so I think this kind of issue that we're seeing, you know, with these medical and science organizations is reflecting things that are going on, you know, in journalism, uh, that are going on in academia more broadly, that, you know, that are going on in other areas. Uh, so there seems to be this kind of institutional capture is the word I hear people refer to a lot on, in a lot of these left-leaning, you know, organizations or, or groups that are just repeating these talking points without really thinking about them in any kind of critical way. Yeah, as some of them, as I think you point out, you point out in your letter, in in some cases they are also ignoring or failing to evaluate the kind the scientific evidence um, in favor of the kind of polit- of the politically correct thing. And one example of that, I can't remember if you were the person who pointed this out, but one example of that is. Um, Universities continuing to use uh, implicit uh, the implicit association test, which has been completely uh, completely debunked as a predictive test, as as far as I can tell from from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the very very detailed um, chapter by Jesse Single on the IAT test in his book, The Quick Fix which is about the replication crisis in psychology. And that test seems to have been largely debunked. Um, and yet it's still used, um, including in psychology departments. And that seems to be a, a victory for politics or political posturing over a kind of scientific investigation. Yeah, absolutely it is. And you're absolutely correct. Yeah, the evidence suggests that the, uh, the IAT, the Implicit Association Task, doesn't predict anything, you know, so it doesn't have any, you know, real value. There was one study that came out, I think it was about a year ago. It was actually done with police officers. Maybe it was a year or two. Um, I can't remember if it was before or after the, uh, the, the death of George Floyd. Um, but uh, basically they put, you know, tens of thousands or so of police officers through this sort of training with the IAT. The uh, upshot of which is, you know, that once they had gone through the training, they got better at the IAT um, but it had no impact on their actual performance as police officers, you know, and that's kind of the thing you see a lot, you know, with IAT based training is, you know, it, you can get sort of it, it trains you to take the IAT is really all that it does. And it has no impact on diversity in organizations or people's behavior in the, you know, in, in the real world. Uh, and as a consequence, yeah, it has become very controversial. And I think, you know, a, certainly a lot of psychologists know this. Um, but the thing with, you know, a lot of, you know, DEI trainings in general, diversity, uh, you know, um, equity and inclusion is that there's, they're, they're business. I mean, there's a lot of money to be had uh, in these things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of DEI, you know, or even doing DEI trainings. Um, but we want to, you know, direct people at trainings that actually work. And the evidence suggests that for the most part, most of the DEI trainings, including, you know, the IAT, we're doing a lot of acronyms today, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, most of these things either don't work or actually backfire. You know, you actually get worse diversity outcomes by sort of forcing people, um, you know, to take these uh, sorts of things. But the reason why I think like the IAT is still being used fairly widely uh, and, you know, uncritically is uh, simply it's a business, you know, so there's millions, maybe billions of dollars, I'm not an economist, um, in, that are now being 
you know, directed towards DEI trainings. And if there isn't a crisis, um, then uh, there isn't as much money to be had, right? You know, so there definitely are incentives in, you know, these businesses and the organizations that sort of uh, consult with them to promote the idea that this is an urgent, you know, crisis sort of situation, um, because that's that's good for business, you know, at the end of it. So I think that's why things like the IAT survive, even when the evidence for them is very poor, um, is because, you know, the incentive structures are there, um, both ideological and monetary, uh, for different individuals to try to keep promoting it. Um, so I think we're, I think we're going to still see the IAT being used for, for years to come, even though, as you said, it's been largely discredited. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just, um, it's probably easiest to just read this actually. I'm just going to read a, a couple of paragraphs from your Colette piece. Mm-hmm. This is relating something that happened recently with the British Psychological Society's publication, The Psychologist. And I think it's just uh, an extremely instructive little kind of tale. BPS, that's the British uh, Psychological Society, Chief Executive Sarb Bajwa mused, are we institutionally racist? I think my answer would be that if it feels like we are, then we probably are. These kinds of public confessions swept leftist institutions in 2020, often without any clarity of what these statements meant or evidence to support them. And uh, I'm I'm just skipping a little bit. Um, In August 2020, the BPS publication, The Psychologist, edited by Dr. John Sutton, published a letter by Dr. Kirsty Miller criticizing the BPS's increased politicization and deviation from good scientific and clinical practice. The letter in exchange can be found on Dr. Miller's website. The expected Twitter storm naturally ensued, um, during which no one came out looking the better for it. But Dr. Sutton decided to retract Dr. Miller's letter. The psychologist subsequently published an issue that focused on systemic racism and presented only views in support of the concept. To be fair, they did publish one subsequent critical letter by Dr. Lewis Mitchell, who called for an evidence-based approach to these controversial questions. Dr. Sutton's reply to Dr. Mitchell, I think this was incredible, uh, but also very typical, stated... We have always been very open about our desire to see constructive, evidence-based psychological conversation on these topics. Of course, we want scientific rigor, but we are not seeking a debate over whether or not racism exists in our society. And we will never invalidate personal experience by demanding what's your scientific evidence. That's really extraordinary. We will never invalidate personal experience by demanding, where's your scientific evidence? And this is the editor-in-chief of a, of a purportedly science publication. Right. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, so, I mean, as I say in the article too, uh, you know, the psychologist, that's the, the magazine published by the BPS, uh, was one of my favorites. I mean, they, they, they were, Excellent. You know, and, and in many cases for challenging people's sort of preconceptions, even in the science, you know, so they would be upfront and talking about sort of controversial ideas and, and giving voice to different perspectives that, 
you know, in many cases I learned stuff from, you know, I was telling students th- a thing and then it would come out that that thing turns out wasn't really true, you know. Uh, so it was a very valuable uh, magazine. So, and, and, I, and I bring that up to point out how rapid a lot of these changes really were. And, I, and I've heard this in other areas as well. You know, journalists talk about this as well. So like how rapid the shift in the culture really was. And that, you know, two years ago, you know, I think probably the psychologists would have published an article on racism that would have allowed people from both sides to give their input uh, and allowed that sort of debate and controversy to sort of, you know, um, work its way way through, you know, actual constructive uh, conversation. And now two years later, they won't, uh, you know, do that. And they're taking what is, you know, an ostensibly anti-science perspective of saying, you know, we're just not going to challenge anybody's personal beliefs about what they're experiencing, you know, which we, we all just sort of pack up and go away. I mean, there's no point to being in psychology, you know, unless you're willing to sort of challenge people's views of the world with data. I mean, it's kind of what we do either as clinicians or uh, scholars, um, you know, in this area. So it really was amazing. And I, and I think, you know, again, in some ways I'm picking on what had been probably one of my favorite, you know, outlets in psychology at one point, uh, because I think it really does show how rapid and um, serious the sort of shift in culture has become into, you know, and again, I, and I think in many cases, the the intention is good, uh, but it is shifted into what is very clearly an anti-science, you know, sort of moral, panicky kind of mode that I think is really going to tarnish our reputation as a field uh, for decades. I think, yeah, I think it's going to be a long time. You know, psychology's always struggled with people's perceptions of it as whether it's really scientific or not. I mean, this is definitely not helping. Um, you know, and I think this is really going to set back efforts to emphasize the scientific nature of psychology for a long time to come. I think um, that's a really crucial, central point that you touched upon there, which is that. One of the jobs of psychologists is to, is to question people's perceptions and, and feelings, um, about their experiences. To, I know that you've worked in cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the central things in that is that the thing that you are feeling strongly mm-hmm. must be true, might not necessarily be true. And, um, you know, your own perceptions and emotions are not necessarily the best guide. You say in, in your book on madness, uh, which has a, has a lot of stuff in it about the history of psychology. And those were actually my, my personal favorite parts of the book. Um, um, you say this, and I think it's relevant here. Generally, people make lousy decisions when they're feeling deep emotions. It's a kind of common madness that can influence us all, unfortunately. When it afflicts those in power, bad things can happen. People, even intelligent people, tend to make decisions emotionally rather than rationally. And when clustered together in groups, that bad instinctual decision-making can become amplified. Um, I think that I took that last bit from your chapter on Trump, and Trumpism. So to be clear, this is not about left versus right. This has nothing to do with partisanship, woke versus anti-woke, etc. But also psychology doesn't, uh, psychology uh, or psychologists practicing clinical psychologists are dealing with individuals and trying to help individuals with their 
issues and problems. Mm-hmm. And one of those it can be the distorting effects of our self-beliefs, our beliefs about the world influenced by our, our emotions. And our emotional responses sometimes can't, can't be trusted, yeah. are disproportionate or inappropriate or self-destructive. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, when I uh, train student counselors uh, that I would say quite often is you really have to get used to this idea when you're working in clinical work is that your patients are going to lie to you all the time. You know, uh, sometimes they're lying to themselves. Sometimes they are deliberately lying to you. Uh, they know that you know, sometimes they know they're lying. Sometimes they don't know they're lying. Um, and you have to you know, be empathic and you have to put sort of one foot in your patients or clients world, but you want to keep one foot in reality, you know, as well. And, you know, so this idea of lived experience that's has become kind of a buzzword over the last five or 10 years is we're really talking about anecdotes, you know, and we always would say like anecdotes are not really good evidence for much of anything. Um, and lived ex- sort of idea of lived experiences are sort of perceptions of the world do tend to get filtered through a number of things that distort reality. So first off, just human memory is terrible, you know. So we tend to misremember things, you know, in a in a broad sort of way. Um, but we also tend to interpret events in ways that make us look as positive as possible, and those that we're in conflict with as negative as possible. So we may notice, for instance, that most of us are friends with the people who are victims of bad relationships, never the people who made relationships bad, you know? Um, And, you know, that is sort of one example of the sort of distorting effect. You know, people tend to blame others when things go wrong, you know, rather than themselves. And we know all these things are true. And of course, when people are more emotional, then yeah, I mean, these things get even worse. People's memories worsen, their, you know, their perception of events become more distorted, uh, more self-serving. People start to make more impulsive, irrational decisions when they're angry or upset. Uh, and things just kind of go, you know, uh, haywire. And and we know all of this. Is this, this. None of this is mystery. I'm not really saying anything that like is controversial in the psychological science. But now in 2022, I was almost said 2021, uh, 2022, uh, we treat everybody on Twitter as if they're telling the, the absolute you know, truth. <laughs> you know? So this idea, if someone says something happened to them on Twitter, then all of a sudden we have to sort of pretend like a Twitter thread is a accurate, you know, uh, well-established, evidence-based accounting of an event uh, that occurred. And in reality... It probably isn't, you know, in some cases, people may be recounting how they personally remember things. They're doing so in good faith, um, but they may be misremembering or misinterpreting the things in ways that, you know, are sort of self-serving, which is just human nature. Um, And in other cases, they may be outright grifters. You know, there may be some people who are just making stuff up because it gets attention or may even be profitable, uh, in some situations. And we somehow have lost this ability to, to remember that, you know, people are kind of full of crap, you know, a lot. And again, it doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right. Uh, we can see it on both sides. You know, we're talking a little bit about, you know, institutional capture in left spaces, but obviously it's happening in right spaces. We, in, we endured the four years of Trump, which, you know, were, uh, you know, really something to live through. I have to, I have to say, uh, I'm obviously not a Trump supporter, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so 
there is this sort of sense, and that came out in you know the the letter by uh, John Sutton. There, we kind of say we're, we're never going to invalidate people's personal experiences. That's really not a healthy way of approaching psychology. However, that you know, in many situations, even if we're getting out of science, and it's like you know, this idea that science should always trump or data should always trump people's perspectives, which it should. Uh, but even if we're getting into clinical work, a part of the importance of clinical work is helping people to reinterpret their lives in ways that are more accurate, that are more database. And sometimes that does involve gently, you know, you don't want to call anybody a liar, but, you know, gently helping people to challenge their personal beliefs, their perceptions, you know, get them to test their beliefs, almost like hypothesis testing, you know, against reality. And oftentimes what we find is that people are experiencing mental distress because of distortions in their perceptions. And that if you help them to perceive the world around them more accurately, that can actually help them in relieving their mental distress. And unfortunately, that's the opposite of how we're approaching society right now, that, you know, we're actually in many ways encouraging people to catastrophize and to generalize and to personalize and all these things that we try to get people not to do uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy. I think like, you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt and and Greg uh, Lukianoff refer to this as safetyism, you know. Uh, and I think they have a really good point. Uh, um, about- I think it's um, I think it's Pamela Paretsky who who coined that term safetyism. Then uh, uh, they do use it in the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. But just to give Pamela a bit of credit here as well. Yeah, very fair. I'm, I'm also just terrible with names sometimes. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I, but I think that you know this thing that we're doing is you know, where we're basically encouraging outrage and telling people they're brave and this sort of stuff if they are emotionally distraught in a public space and such as actually encouraging a lot of these sort of emotional reactions and behaviors that are in many ways quite unhealthy. Um, You know, and if we look at the data, the data suggests that, you know, we're experiencing certainly United States, I'm not familiar with UK data, but certainly United States, we're experiencing an, an increase in mental health problems, particularly among young people. Um, although not limited to young people by any means. And, uh, you know, of course, the reasons why that is is going to be complicated. So I certainly can't say it all boils down to any one thing. But but I do increasingly buy the argument that this sort of approach that we're doing, uh, whether we call it safetyism or, or something else, um, I think is contributing at very least uh, to this problem. And we really need to reevaluate whether what we're doing is actually helping people or actually harming people, even if the intent is good. The problem is there there are sort of several levels here, aren't there? There's the sociological level. There's the analysis of society. So let's say, for example, that there has been an increase in the number of sexual assaults, and it's important to draw attention to that and to protest that. I'm just taking a hypothetical example here Mm -hmm. and to look into the reasons for that and just to seek um, mitigations or solutions on the political level. So on the big kind of statistical level. And then there's the question of your, you, you as the individual, what is psychologically healthy for you? Mm -hmm. So um, as a society, we don't want to brush off people's experiences of trauma, um, but we want to actually look at the kind of look at what is contributing to th- to that but on a psychological level 
it doesn't make sense to be telling the person um, to to live in fear. Yeah. And so I I think that there is this kind of uh, there's this kind of collapsing of levels here, and it's not it's sort of it seems to me to be stopping psychologists from effectively doing their job that there are uh you know uh, let's let's take a less emotive issue let's take say um a be- overweight and obesity mm-hmm. and on the one hand we might say okay there are some structural problems here which are um the over marketing and over availability of highly palatable uh, very highly highly calorific um kind of habit forming junk foods um why is it that when you go to hospital you get the most unhealthy food you will get anywhere you know why are why are cancer patients always served kind of hamburgers and <laughs> and hash browns and and um chocolate why are school meetings and office meetings and why why is so much of society centered around junk food and why is it uh, what can we do to make it easier for people to make better choices food-wise? Yeah. That's one good question. Um, but the other question is, what? how should you as an individual lead your life if you as an individual want to lose weight? Yeah. Well, you've got to put aside the kind of idea of the obesogenic society, etc., and see what personal steps you can take, um, you yourself, because that's what you can have direct control over. And um, those two issues seem to be just constantly conflated. Mm -hmm. It's as if a telling saying that, well, I, I, I personally like don't buy chocolate hobnobs or something that is somehow um, politically incorrect and is sort of denying the idea that there are also economic and societal factors at work here, etc. Mm-hmm. And that just seems like we're dealing with two completely different things. Mm. Not everything has to be a big societal statement of protest or an analysis of society on a on a large statistical level. So I don't know if I'm making sense anymore. But um, <laughs> I, I, I usually try not to make too much sense myself. But no, no, you do. <laughs> you, are, you are. Yeah, I was, I was gonna. I was gonna say. Uh, you know, if you want to get me to eat vegetables, you just need to start making them out of chocolate, and then I'll be definitely on board um, at that point. But no, I mean, I think yeah. I mean, you, you get, and then you, the the issue I think, and and of course, I'm not a, by any means an obesity expert, but um, I, I think the challenge you get too is when the issue becomes like people's feelings, you know, and of course we do want to take people's feelings into consideration. So that's why I say like a lot of these things come from a, a place of, of good intent. Um, you know, so there, there is this movement around, you know, overweight and obesity. And you might've heard it before that it's called the, the healthy at any weight, um, you know, movement. So, and, and basically the idea is, is that for people who are, you know, starting to gain more weight than they want. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I, I'm over, I, I just, Cross the line of fifty years, so I'm starting to have uh, you know my own. I, I wish it was true that people are healthy at any weight. Put it that way. Uh, you know, the evidence, <laughs> no, you're not healthy at any weight. You know, like there are clear health consequences of you know becoming overweight or, or obese. You know, I personally wish it weren't true, but you know uh, that would be wonderful news. Uh, but here you have a situation where the intent is good. We don't want people to feel you know psychologically bad. You know, we don't want people to feel shamed 
uh, or feel like they're ugly or, or whatever else. The intent is very good. I'm totally on board with the intent. But if it becomes a point where we're kind of lying to people, you know, to say like, you know, it doesn't matter what weight you are, you're equally healthy, even though a wealth of evidence um, suggests the opposite. Um, then I, there again, I don't know that what we're doing is actually helpful. I mean, maybe there are kinder, you know, more sensitive ways of helping people understand that they need to lose weight without feeling shame, you know, without feeling like, like they're experiencing a personal failure or, or whatever else. But, but I think just telling people what they want to hear isn't necessarily the thing that is going to be, you know, very, uh, very helpful for them. And so I think that's what's happening in a lot of these these uh these areas is that we've really got to this point where you know particularly if you know someone identifies as coming from a historically disadvantaged or marginalized group you know that we have locked ourselves in this step of just kind of telling people what they want to hear or you know maybe a better way of putting it sort of validating we're in a sort of validating you know or affirmative uh, mode but but once again that isn't always what people need to hear, you know, what people want to hear and what they need to hear. It could be very different things. And, and again, I don't think if, if what we're doing is leaving the realm of reality, you know, we're sort of creating these fictions um, to make people feel validated in their worldview. I don't know that that in the long term might feel good in the moment for everybody. You might feel like you're doing a good thing. You know, you might feel like the person is being validated, but you may be propagating a fiction in order to do so. And I think long term, people benefit from understanding reality more than they necessarily do just having their worldviews affirmed without any um, constructive you know, feedback uh, on that sort of thing. So, so I think that is a good example in, in many ways of, of what is happening in a larger realm is, again, I think the intent is good. But uh, if you tell someone that they're healthy in any way and then they die of a heart attack, uh, I don't know that you've done them you know, a real service, you know, necessarily. And uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a struggle run right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, really to help people to make the right choices, uh, you have to give them the information and then they can decide what to do with it because also losing weight is bloody, can be bloody horrible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some people feel more intense hunger than others. There's too many cookies in the world. Yeah, and maybe it's not, you know, it's it maybe it's not worth it for you personally. Yeah. Um because maybe the effort it takes will detract from the energy you need to do other things. And it it's best that you're able to weigh up that decision with accurate information rather than with this kind of condescending sort of pretense which is which people must know isn't true and it just leads to kind of constant cognitive dissonance and defensiveness. Mm -hmm. We are getting a little bit into the weeds here because I do find you very easy to talk to. Um, but <laughs> I'd, I'd like to return a little bit. I'd like to return a bit to your um, High Madness Shaped History book sure. um, or return to, go to the book because you do talk there about a lot of intrinsic problems with um, psychology and particularly um, psychiatry. And um, let's have a look at a couple of those very sort of central problems, which to me are much more central than the idea of whether, whether or not psychologists are racist. So, um, for example, um, you talk about how the DSM works. Um, 
And the DSM is basically, as you say, mental illness in mental illness categories are decided by committee because there's no one-to-one analogy between mental health and physical health. So, for example, there are markers. Um, because we have so much uh, diabetes in the family, I go for regular uh, fasting blood sugar tests. And, you know, there are clear markers. If my blood sugar is above this level, then I might have prediabetes. And if it's above the, this level, I might have actual full-blown diabetes. Um, because we have some normal weight people in our family with type 2 diabetes. Um, but there isn't any equivalent for mental health. There isn't uh, generally a marker for most mental health conditions that can show you, ah, this person has, we can test their levels and see that they have depression or they have anxiety. And um, you say, I'm just going to read this uh, little short passage. Um, By the time of the DSM-2 in 1968, so I believe the DSM began in the late 50s. Mm Yeah. Psychiatry increasingly coalesced around the model of mental illness as synonymous with medical illnesses and all the talk of neurotransmitters and chemical imbalances with which we've become familiar. But this model has also been criticized as having sketchy data to support it, as well as having done little to improve mental health outcomes. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what psychiatry has tried to do um, is sort of accommodate people's, I I think, you know, people tend to think about things in binaries, and this fits very well, for the most part, with medicine, you know, so either you have the flu or you don't, you know, and I understand that sometimes you can have it worse, you can have it less, but, you know, you you either have cancer or you don't, you know, and everybody kind of knows what the thing is, you know, if you have this particular critter who's running around in your blood, then you've got that critter, you know, and we can find the critter in a blood test or under the microscope or there are other markers or things like that. So, you know, people are kind of used to thinking of medicine in that way. Um, now, with mental health, there again, there isn't really that sort of equivalent. You know, we don't have critters running around in our bloodstream that you can test for. Um, you know, there really aren't, you know, there's no blood tests you can take to get depression. There's not really a brain scan you can get for most mental health disorders that will tell you whether you have it uh, or you don't. And and these and mental health is more complicated. It's not like you either have depression or you don't, or you have anxiety or you don't, you know, depression and anxiety kind of run through each other. You know, they're very similar sort of, you know, phenomenon, first of all. And obviously you can have a little bit or you can have a lot and it's not really sure how much do you need before it becomes, you know, abnormal, uh, if you will. So there's a lot more complexity uh, to the issue of mental health uh, than there is for a lot, at least, of uh, medical diagnoses. But nonetheless, psychiatrists have tried to sort of force mental health into this sort of categorical system because it just it sort of helps people sort of conceptualize it. And again, there again, I don't think the intent was bad, um, but I think it helps people sort of like fit you know, these conditions into boxes, you know. And the reality is that mental health doesn't really fit into boxes very well. So what happens is, as a consequence, the boxes keep changing, you know. So it's, again, this is different from medicine. It's not like you know, in one year. We say you have the flu if you have this little critter running through you. But 10 years later, you know what? Never mind. You know, if you have that critter, we're not, we're not going to call that the flu anymore. We're going to call it the, the flu if you have this other critter 
running around in your bloodstream. You know, um, that's not a thing that really happens in, in medicine, but it does happen in psychiatry all the time. So people keep redefining what a mental health disorder is. Some mental health disorders vanish from one version of the DSM to the next, or they get added in uh, from one version to the next. The symptoms change all the time. And, and what we tend to find is that these categories that we're putting people in um, tend not to be very reliable. Uh, some, are, some are better than others, to be, to be sure. You know? So if you take two psychiatrists and you take each, each of them interviews a particular mental health patient, uh, they may come up with totally different diagnoses, even using the DSM, you know. Uh, so, and that's been one of the criticisms of, of the, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, that psychiatrists use, is even though it was intended to improve the reliability of psychiatric diagnoses from what people were doing before, um, which was total chaos, in fairness, uh, and it may have improved things a little bit, but it definitely still isn't giving us you know, a super reliable system of diagnosis uh, for people. And and that is kind of a problem in, in two different ways. You know, one is, of course, if you can't come up with a reliable diagnosis, it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what kind of treatment you should be giving uh, someone. And also, it's not really clear where the dividing line is between someone who may be experiencing some stress but isn't mentally ill uh, and someone who really does have a mental illness, you know. So, and what has been happening over time is we're seeing that line moved further and further down the road to including more and more individuals. So it's becoming easier to be diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis over each subsequent edition of the DSM. Um, And a classic example of this is historically for instance, if you had a significant, you know, stressful event in your life, like let's say your mother died, you know, for instance, and you felt bad after that, you know, so the sort of diagnosis for depression is basically two weeks or more of feeling sad almost all day, almost every day. So, you know, if your parent dies, it's kind of normal to feel that way for a while, right? To feel as sad every day, almost all day, because you're, you're, having a normal emotional response to a, a particular acute stressor. Um, and historically, the DSM acknowledged that, you know, that if you had a really significant life event that you sort of should feel bad about, then there, then it's not a mental health disorder. You know, it's not diagnosable. And then DSM-5, they changed it. So now that now it is diagnosable. Um, and uh, so basically, if you feel bad after your mom dies, you have a mental health disorder, you know? And again, I think, you know, people will argue, well, the intent was good once again, that this is trying to help people get, you know, maybe if they did take medication, it would help them feel better for even those two weeks, you know? Uh, And that's a fair point, you know, I think, but it is creating a lot of confusion in terms of what do we even mean by a mental illness? You know, now I'm not, I'm not doubting that mental illnesses are real. I I think they, they absolutely are real. But I think we do have to acknowledge that, you know, these boxes we're trying to fit people in, you know, is a very simplified version of what's actually happening in mental illness. And when that happens, too, we can also see sometimes that some of these mental health diagnoses really become more about social control than they are about actual illness in the individual. So, of course, the, the classic example of that was homosexuality, which was a diagno- which was a mental health diagnosis for many decades until it was removed in the 1980s. Um, so very clearly there, you know, there's nothing, if, if you, you know, in, enjoy the company of, of people of your own sex, that doesn't mean you're mentally ill, 
but at the time, society disapproved of it. And so, you know, because society didn't like it, you know, psychiatrists went along with that and labeled that a mental illness. Um, and we're seeing the same thing with things like gaming disorder. I'm always going to bring everything back to video games. I apologize. Yeah, no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> or like gaming disorder, the idea that you can play video games too much, you know, basically, uh, which is not really an evidence-based disorder. You know, I, I do some research in that area and it's a, it's kind of a dumpster fire, but, uh, but nonetheless, you know, uh, the, the the WHO uh, moved forward, the World Health Organization moved forward with this gaming disorder diagnosis. I think the American Psychiatric Association will too uh, very shortly. Um, and, and that's very clearly sort of a moral panic driven diagnosis. It's just old people don't like kids playing video games is what it really comes down to. And these committees are comprised of, of old people <laughs> for, for the most part. You know, it's not 20 year olds on these committees of psychiatrists for the most part. You know, and there are, there are issues of conflicts of interest. So sometimes you find that, you know, that some of the people on these committees, you know, are working with pharmaceutical industries and, you know, and that sort of stuff. So that comes out uh, sometimes. They do try to prevent that, but it doesn't always work out, you know, 100%. Um, so I, I think, you know, again, it's not, you know, I'm not a Scientologist. I'm not doubting that psychiatry is real I, and, and helpful in many cases and that mental health conditions are real. But it really is this issue of the sort of reliability and the conceptualization of how all this stuff works. The reality is very complicated and murky. And what we're doing is trying to simplify it for, for people by creating these boxes and trying to jam people into these boxes when that may not always be very accurate. Mm-hmm. And how effective do you think um, do you think pharmaceuticals are for treating things like depression and anxiety? Not Great. Uh, honestly, you know, I can't say it doesn't help some people, but there are a lot of controversies, uh, controversies around this thing. So, so the one we find, well, what I'll say is people tend to overestimate how effective they are, you know, so, um, and I'll give you two examples. I'll talk about schizophrenia and I'll talk about depression, um, a little bit. Um, so with schizophrenia, we do have a, a whole class of drugs that are used, uh, the antipsychotics, um, that are really good at removing the hallucinations and delusions that people with schizophrenia tend to have. And that's wonderful. Um, but they don't treat a lot of the other side effects that, that or, or uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. So the confusion, the disorientation, the inability to sort of plan ahead, uh, the communication problems. So, so basically it removes one set of symptoms, but leaves a bunch of other symptoms in place. And, and those symptoms are actually quite debilitating, you know, even though the person is not hallucinating anymore, if you have those other symptoms, you can't really hold a job. It's hard to maintain a relationship. It's hard to remember to take your medication. Uh, you know, so, uh, so, and what happened, I think, is people tended to assume that these medications would be radically positive and that people could take these medications and sort of return to normal life. And we had this whole deinstitutionalization movement in the 1950s and 1960s in the United States to sort of closed down most of the asylums uh, that we had and released people onto the street. And so here's your medication. Good luck. Um, and as you might guess, that didn't really work out <laughs> for the most part. And, uh, so I, you know, I believe that contributed in a major way to our homelessness problem in the United States, you know, uh, probably is contributing partially, not in whole by any means, but partially, uh, to, um, some violent crimes, uh, and people with schizophrenia are about three to five times more likely to commit violent crimes than people without schizophrenia. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, the medications are, aren't useless, but, you know, I don't think that people had a clear vision about what they did and didn't do um, necessarily. Um, with depression, 
so again, we have multiple classes of, of uh, antidepressants you can choose between um, at this point. Um, the evidence suggests that for people who have mild to moderate depression, that antidepressants don't work any better than the placebo. Um, so antidepressants do not seem to be very effective unless you have very severe depression. Uh, so for most people who are sort of functional uh, and non-suicidal and able, you know, they're unhappy, but they're able to sort of get through with their lives, antidepressants don't really seem to do much. Um, and the negative side of that is for young people, people 25 and younger, those antidepressants may actually increase suicide risk. Uh, so in that sense, it's worse than placebo. Uh, it's worse than doing nothing um, with individuals. Um, and that is a particular data point that a lot of people don't know about. So, I, you know, I, I've certainly come across many individuals who have depression. They're young, they're college students or teenagers, and they've been put on antidepressants. And, you know, their depression is not fun, um, but they're not suicidal. You know, they're able to go to school or, you know, go to work, whatever they need to do. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't tell them, go off your medication. But, you know, I can talk a little bit about the data um, and say, you know, if you have any concerns, you should go back to your psychiatrist uh, with some of these concerns. But, you know, the evidence suggests that these sorts of you know, medications generally do not work better than placebo and may have significant side effects um, that in some cases could actually be life threatening. You know, not in most cases, but, you know, occasionally can be very serious. Um, so, uh, so there again, I, you know, I certainly won't say that, you know, um, the medications we have for psychiatry are valueless. I think in some cases they can be very helpful, um, but probably not to the extent that people had hoped uh, in many situations. And, you know, I did a lot of work with juvenile, um, I guess what we call juvenile delinquents. Um, and uh, it was very common to see psychiatrists just sort of toss everything <laughs> at, at these kids. And, uh, you know, and of course, for conduct related issues, there really are no medications that are particularly effective for that. So, so I do think in some cases we do have a real problem with over medicating people in hopes that the medication may work, even if the evidence base isn't there to suggest that medication is going to be the thing that's going to be helpful for a particular individual. But, but that's what psychiatrists do. I mean, that's their, that's basically their whole job is, is to dispense medication. So, if you go to a psychiatrist, you know, 99 times out of 100, that's what you're going to get as a prescription uh, for, for medication. You know, um, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail um, a little bit. And again, I, that maybe that's a little bit unfair. I'm not trying to disparage psychiatry. Um, oftentimes, medication can be helpful. Um, but in other situations, people might benefit from something else, you know, perhaps more of a therapy-based uh, situation or or, or uh, you know, who knows what. But, uh, but yeah, so they're, they're sometimes effective, but often not. Yeah, we had, a, we had the same, I can't remember what term you used for it in the States, uh, but we call it care in the community here. Mm-hmm. Um, the same kind of thing. I think it happened a little bit later in the UK. It was really more in the 80s during the Thatcher years um, that a great many uh, mental health wards and... Um, institutions were closed down and people were sent out for their care in the community, which ideally works through, you have social workers and care workers and um, benefits and various things scheduled, etc. Um, and, and, and having had a little bit of secondhand experience of the system, actually twice having had secondhand experience of the system because my ex-husband's 
um, brother, who was his his ward, um, has severe mental health issues. And I also um, uh, live with somebody who has mental health issues, who is... Um, who lives with his brother, who is his, his ward. So um, I, I'm in this situation once again. If, um, and um, although uh, my housemate's um, situation is much less severe, mm. but nevertheless, the, the, kinds of, um, the kinds of access to care, benefits, um, psychiatric drugs, etc., getting access to those things involves so much bureaucracy mm-hmm. that I can barely deal with it. And I have a high IQ and I'm a mentally basically healthy person, I think. I mean, yeah. others <laughs> might well disagree. They might disagree with both those assessments. But, um, you know, I, even I find it really confusing and difficult to deal with. And without, in, in effect, uh, somebody, a family member or close friend, um, I don't see how um, either of the two people I've known um, with mental health issues would be able to negotiate the system at all. And therefore, I'm unsurprised by, um, I think, Shelter, the the UK homeless organization, have um, estimated that at least half of the people who are homeless have are people with severe mental health problems. And many of them are people who would have been institutionalized back when that was the standard yeah. uh, treatment, which, of course, in itself wasn't ideal either. Um, so it uh, um, it's a it's a huge problem. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even if you're you know sort of bringing it back to you know talking about the the race and police violence stuff, even if you look at you know many circumstances of excessive police force. Um, even fatal shootings of unarmed individuals, um, whether those individuals are um, black or, or white, uh, one of the commonalities we've seen in a lot of those situations is uh, mental health. Uh, so you have an individual who uh, is struggling with mental health, may not be able to comply with officer requests. Uh, the officers are not trained well in dealing in de-escalating, uh, you know, a situation where there's a mental health um circumstance and basically everything escalates you know that does not in any way mean that the person deserved the treatment they got by the police uh oftentimes the police are are just not well trained to deal with with mental health um and so i think there again if we you know our our circumstances in the united states around mental health are very very poor you know there really are not many opportunities for people that are struggling with chronic mental health issues to get good care uh, and so they're left in the community where they oftentimes, you know, struggle. Um, myself and some colleagues actually are uh, in the midst of uh, publishing a study on, on excessive police force. And what we tend to find in that study is that uh, excessive police force um, complaints of uh, excessive uh, police force were predicted by community mental health problems, not the sort of racial composition of the uh, of the community. So I think we're ignoring, I think, even in that issue this really sort of major component uh, that probably explains a lot of what's happening in that area. But, but yeah, I mean, what happened essentially is the asylums we had in the United States, and it probably was true in the United Kingdom. Of course, you know, Bedlam is still the most famous of the, of the asylums. Um, and uh, is that the asylums were poorly run and oftentimes didn't have appropriate attention to due process, you know, so people were sort of trapped in them indefinitely 
even if it wasn't the sort of care that they needed uh, any longer. Um, but I think the deinstitutionalization movement, you know, um, as we call it here, care in, in the community, as you call it there, um, cause a lot of problems as well by simply taking people out of the asylums and then dropping them into, into nothing, you know, basically, uh, or very little actual support. Uh, and, you know, and I would have, this may be controversial, but, you know, I would advocate the idea that we really do need to start thinking about returning to some form of state-sponsored asylum-like system. Now, these, you know, if we did that, it would need to be supported by tax money. It would need to be humane in ways that asylums historically oftentimes were not. Uh, and it would need to have a clear due process procedure so that, you know, the court system was making sure that a person really still needed to be in the asylum and that was reviewed regularly. Um, so if the person was getting better, they could be returned to the community. Um, you know, but I think we need to really start thinking about some of that, you know, situation and, uh, you know, and I think that would be a, you know, everybody wins sort of situation. The people with these chronic mental health situations would be able to get the care they, they need. It would be state supported care. So they wouldn't have to worry about insurance or paying for it or things like that. Um, and, you know, some of these problems in society around homelessness, you know, violent crime, uh, even perhaps not all, but perhaps some of these fatal police shootings and things like that, we may see some resolution of some of these situations uh, if we did a better job of taking care of our chronically mentally ill population of people. Yeah, I th I think, I, I mean, I, I feel there's been... Um it's once again, once again, the kind of fear of stigmatizing people um, has also led people, I think, to understate the connections between violence and mental illness. And you say that drawing on your own personal work as a psychologist, I know this is anecdotal, of course, but um, it, uh, it sounds just far more commonsensical to me. I'm quoting you, a combination of depression with antisocial personality features is one of the stronger risk factors for youth violence. Um, you know, there's just this, this kind of, if we acknowledge this link, we're stigmatizing, um, people who just ha who have mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and that seems like, again, a conflation of the statistical with the personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we actually, you know, in terms of like talking about the sort of the increased risk, I mean, we do have good empirical evidence to support, um, in fact, f fairly consistent evidence to support that certain, you know, mental health disorders do increase people's risk of uh, violent crime. You know, we talked about, I've done some of the work in my own studies of, of youth, when we do find this combination of depression and antisocial personality traits seems to be associated with youth violence fairly consistently. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you know, a, a wealth of studies find that schizophrenia, uh, particularly if you combine it with substance abuse, it tends to be um, and create an elevated risk about, again, about a three to five times risk of committing violent crime. Now, it doesn't, doesn't mean that everybody or even the majority of people who have schizophrenia commit violent crimes. Uh, it just indicates that um, there's an elevated risk there. And, or, and what sometimes happens is, you know, again, you have, you know, advocates for the mentally ill who, you know, are certainly, once again, their intent is good. They're acting in good faith. They want to decrease stigma, which is a worthwhile cause. Um, and they'll mangle some of the numbers. So the, the one of the more interesting ones is there was a study from Sweden that uh, sort of narrowly defined mental illness to involve only schizophrenia, only psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. 
Uh, and what they found is that about 5% of crimes in Sweden are committed by individuals with these chronic mental uh, health conditions. So, of course, then advocates say, ha-ha, see, only 5% of crimes are committed by people with schizophrenia. And they have to realize, well, yeah, but they only make up less than 1% of the population. <laughs> you know, So you have less than 1% of the population committing 5% of the crimes. That's a massive elevation in risk you know, for that population of individuals. And also you narrowed in, you know, the definition of mental illness there to include only schizophrenia. We're, we're not talking about antisocial personality disorder or depression or other kinds of conditions that also can contribute to, uh, to you know, to criminal behavior. Um, so sometimes you have to be a little bit careful even with how people use the numbers and people how use the, uh, you know, the studies. You know, there's this, uh, again, sort of motivated reasoning. You know, people will sort of throw data points at you. And you have to think about like, well, well, yeah, but how are they defining what they're talking about uh, in the, you know, in the situation? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we do have very clear, you know, evidence that, um, again, uh, you know, particularly schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders and certain other conditions like antisocial personality disorder, you know, tend to be associated with elevated violent crime risk. Um, and I think that, you know, obfuscating that data point, you know, trying to obscure that doesn't really do anybody any favor uh, because in some ways this is a good argument. If you want to get people to get serious about like long-term mental health care, you know, at least in the United States, nobody's super excited about paying taxes for that. You know, that's not like, you know, because you get this attitude of, well, why should I have to pay some of my money that I earned to help someone else who can't get their life together? You know, and it may not be the most empathic, you know, viewpoint, but humans are not an inherently empathic species. Uh, so you have to, in some ways, cater the argument to, well, yeah, uh, but if you pay this tax money, the odds of you being assaulted by some stranger on the street somewhere goes down, you know, significantly. So it actually benefits you as well. Uh, and I think that's a powerful argument to, to make if you're trying to advocate for greater state-sponsored uh, mental health care. And you actually are probably making it harder in some ways for people to get care, particularly state-sponsored, tax-sponsored care, if you're kind of making it sound like a big nothing burger, you know, to some extent, like, you know, that you should only pay taxes out of compassion, not because it's going to do you potentially some good uh, as well. Uh, you can make the compassion argument, but I think if you make the practical argument that you may benefit from paying taxes in this way, just like you benefit from paying taxes to support police officers or firefighters uh, and that sort of thing, um, then that is a more influential argument um, than trying to, particularly if it's data-based, um, than trying to pretend that there's no association whatsoever between a mental illness and, and, and crime. So I think there again, that's an example of a well-intentioned mistake. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm shifting topics a little bit um, back to your your book on madness, on the history of madness. One of the things you uh, you argue in the book is that um, so both liberals and conservatives engage in science denialism mm -hmm. when the science conflicts with their ideological views, which was um, very sounds very intuitive. Um, but the thing that surprised me more is that they are even in the areas in which, let's say, left wingers. To use the, one of the examples you give, are supposedly supporting the science. They are doing so not because they actually understand the science or are more scientifically informed. So, um, 
left-wingers are no more scientifically informed about global warming than right-wingers, except in, in as far as they know it's happening and, and it's a bad thing. But they know no more about the details than their opponents do. So therefore, it's not really a knowledge of the science which is informing their point of view, but um, but feelings, emotions, beliefs, and belonging that are informing their point of view. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, Republicans don't believe in global warming because that's what Republicans do. And Democrats do believe in global warming because that's what Democrats do. Uh, or perhaps that's, that's what Demo- that's what Republicans don't. <laughs> you know, so a lot of these uh, positionalities on, on science issues are determined by one's own group and what they believe. But also, what does the other side think? And if the other side thinks this thing, then it must be false. You know, uh, so, you know, there, there actually is a great uh, comedy sketch on YouTube. It's called Defined by Trump. You know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, relates to this and how basically everybody divides on every issue, you know, into these sort of polarized uh, tribes. And, uh, yeah, you do get this sort of sense of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you have these in the UK. We have these signs everywhere in the United States where people put the sign on their lawn saying, in this house, we believe science is real, which is like, the weirdest. We don't we don't have those here. Um, or not, not usually. That's a kind of one of those corny American things. It's, it's very bad. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> you're not missing out uh, on any, and I'm speaking as a scientist, like, you know, when I see these, these signs, I think you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not like, you know, believing Jesus Christ is real or, or whatever else, or believing the moon is real or whatever, you know, this is a, uh, this science is complicated. It's not like a set, you know, uh, set of beliefs that you ascribe to it's always changing um but uh but yeah what you see is you know is uh, you know pe- people tend to adopt science positions that support their worldviews um and ignore science positions that don't support their worldviews and what what happens in a lot of these situations is that you know you, know, you may see these news articles that have come out um for instance that'll say conservatives are more in denial of science than liberals are. And and what that survey did was just ask a bunch of questions about like global warming and, and other things that conservatives don't like, you know, so they loaded the questions to be you know, friendly for, for progressives or liberals. Um, and the reality is that is on other topics, you know, progressives or liberals are just as likely to ignore or deny or be hostile you know, to, uh, to, to the science. So one of my, you know, favorite ones or more interesting ones, I think is sort of the gender is a social construct, you know, for instance, is a mantra you will hear on the left, uh, quite a bit. Um, and the reality is, is that the evidence suggests that gender identity, at least our perception of being male and female resides in the hypothalamus of the brain. So it is not a social construct at all. It is very much a biological phenomenon. Um, that uh, that exists, and uh, and and yet, despite a wealth of evidence, you know, people on the left will recite this mantra. Um, even, even gender role behavior, you know, to a large degree, is, is determined, you know, biologically. Not all of it; some of it is social, to be sure. But you know, but people kind of make say this: if, if you can fit something into a slogan, it's not science. It's really kind of the you know the thing I try to em- emphasize to people. Uh, you know, same thing with like the systemic racism debate. You know, if you kind of point out, well, you know, in the United States, 
white people aren't doing the best. In fact, South Asians and immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean actually are doing better um, than white people uh, in the United States. And if you look at, you know, police shootings, you know, it's a more nuanced issue, you know, more whites are shot than blacks, you know, and uh, even if you look at sort of the the proportional differences, a lot of that comes down to class rather than race. You know, so you kind of you know point to the data in some of these areas, but because it doesn't fit with the worldview of uh, the folks on the left, they're very hostile, you know, towards that um, that data. You know, uh, in in many ways, the same way that conservatives are hostile. Uh, when I'll point out the evidence doesn't suggest that pornography consumption is related to sexual assault, you know. Um, so these are, you know, almost quasi-religious beliefs that people on both sides will hold, uh, and they'll maintain them even in the face of scientific evidence. Uh, and it's not a thing that people on the right do or people on the left do. It's just a human thing. People on the center do it too, you know. It's just our natural human inclination to sort of be defensive about our own personal beliefs and worldview and highlight the science that supports it and then ignore or be hostile to the science that that, that doesn't. It's confirmation bias, you know, and mm-hmm. the people that are sticking these lawn signs you know, on their, on their lawns, they're not too many of them, but, but thankfully, but they do, I do see them every now and again. Um, you know, they're engaging in a polarized culture war. They're not doing anything to actually support science, you know, um, but, uh, you know, and sometimes we do have to kind of have trust in scientists, you know, like I don't know anything about, climate change. I, I, I believe it's real, but I only believe it's real because I assume that the scientists who are studying it aren't idiots. Um, you know, so that is a faith statement on my part, you know, to sort of, uh, buy into the, the, what the scholars are saying. But even if you gave me the data, I wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, I wouldn't know how to evaluate it, um, myself. So sometimes we do have to sort of trust the, the scientists to know what they're talking about, which is exactly why, you know, kind of bringing this back around to our original conversation when science organizations get institutional capture, you know, when they start parroting slogans from one side of the politics or the other one, that decreases people's confidence in science and, you know, and can cause real harm, uh, particularly if we are talking about major issues like climate change or, or whatever else, you know, may be really crucial for us to pay attention to. So, um, so, so I wished it scholars and scientists were a little better about not falling into these polarizing political traps, which they have been falling into for at least the last few years. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the pandemic has made that very obvious in a number of ways, just one of which is that there should be no intrinsic connection between being a critique of wokery and being kind of anti-lockdowns and anti-vaccines. Yeah. Uh, and yet, as soon as the kind of... At first, there was some confusion. Um, but as soon as the fault lines were drawn, it was like, well, um, I'm a leftist. I'm pro-lockdowns. I'm like, our lockdowns are being imposed by a Tory government. You do realize that? An actual right, a right-wing government who are in power. But it doesn't matter. It's become, this is the left thing, and the right thing is taking ivermectin and being anti-vax, etc. Of course, not everybody sort of identifies with woke versus anti-woke in that strong way. Um, And one of the things you say in your book is that people who identify strongly with a political party or a political side are likely to be more 
uh, are more prone to have extreme views than than people who are don't who don't many of them let's say have split in a completely predictable way on this issue yeah you know it it kind of it kind of it's really it's really bizarre those two things aren't connected mm-hmm. you know i'm not a fan of critical race theory and i am a fan of vaccines and i don't see what how those two things are connected but they are because they're part of people's kind of um you know set of their key chain of kind of identity related beliefs. Yeah. I'm not claiming I'm immune from from having my own keychain, but just in that particular issue, I notice it because I um, I don't um, I don't I don't I don't have those sets of overlapping beliefs, which seem to many people to have become one like giant amorphous thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting how yeah how people do sort of sort themselves into these groups. And then, you know, those groups will become, um, they'll sort of police the attitudes of, you know, anybody that initially are, or again, I hesitate to use the word allies because of course that's a loaded term these days too. But, uh, you know, so you know, I see this term like crypto woke thrown around a lot, which is like the, the weirdest thing. It's apparently an insult. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so you have, you know, you had the, the, what we're calling wokeism or wokery, whatever on one side, and you had like the Trumpism and the alt-right and, you know, sort of the craziness on that side on, on the other side. And then you kind of had this sort of advent in the last three, four, five years of, I guess, what's being called sort of the anti-woke. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about that, you know, my, my initial impression was, yeah, they're speaking about, you know, freedom of speech and, academic freedom and sort of return to database, you know, a lot of valuable things that I agree with, you know, and then, you know, not everybody, but certainly some figures in that group, as you said, started talking about vaccines and masks and like, wait a minute, (laughs) where where is this coming from? This doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, uh, what we were originally talking about. And, And some of it, you know, started to descend into, you know, kind of like, woo, you know, kind of like anti-science nonsense, you know, a, a little bit. That started to worry me as well. But it seems to be, I think, you know, kind of human nature is, is again, we it's the, that tribalism that people tend to talk to a lot about a lot, that we tend to want to sort ourselves in boxes, you know, and then whoever's in the other box, they're the bad people, right? You know, so, you know, I, I pick on wokery on the left, you know, a fair amount. And I pick on Trumpism, you know, a fair amount. I had Trump's in my book and I don't think he comes across terribly positive, um, you know, in the, in the book. But I, I think the most people on both of these sides mean well. I mean, I think, you know, they may be diluted in some respects, but I think their intentions are generally good. Um, and I think what happens when we sort ourselves into boxes, you know, like this, whether it's woke or Trumpism or anti-woke or whatever the hell the next box, anti-anti-woke, I think I've heard people refer to that now, uh, God forbid, um, you know, is we then start to look at the other people as bad, you know, and that I think is the root of a lot of our toxicity right now is 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 to not just hold a bunch of views, but to assume that people that don't hold those views are traitors or, uh, you know, evil people or bad people uh, or whatever else. So we've sort of lost the ability to assume good faith, even among those individuals with whom we may passionately disagree with on a lot of issues. Uh, And if you kind of look at like the polarization in the United States, 
Um, and I'm guessing there may be some of that around Brexit in the United Kingdom. Maybe it's not as bad over there as it is over here. Um, Ooh, yeah. okay. it's as bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. So a lot of it is a sense of like, you're just, you're just, you know, if, if you um, voted for, for Trump, I did not vote for Trump in either election. Uh, but if someone did, then you're a racist bigot, you know, who deserves to die of COVID, you know, sort of thing. And if you are a woke person who who voted for Bernie Sanders and, and you know, although uh, he didn't become the uh, nominee, then you are this snowflake, woke, communist, you know, trying to indoctrinate our kids, blah, blah, blah. Um, so people, we tend to assume the worst uh, in each other across these divides, which I don't think is, is uh, you know, uh, super, super uh, helpful. But it's just, it's, I mean, it's tricky to figure out a way out of that, right? I mean, I think, you know, growing up in the U.S. in the 80s, um, we had the Russians, right? You know, <laughs> so we, all, we all got along in the U.S. for the most part because the Russians were the bad guys. Um, maybe we need, maybe we need some new bad guys, you know, that we can all unite. Uh, to, I don't know. I'm actually probably not suggesting anything super helpful either. Uh, but, uh, but I think that that may be part of the source of our problem is we just lost an external group of bad guys, um, to all be concerned about, you know, even if we had minor differences, we would say we're all basically on the same page of confronting communism or stopping the Soviet union or, or, or whatever else. Um, now we don't really have that kind of existential threat that is facing the entire country. So we've turned on each other, you know, and, you know, our fellow country people are the bad guys, uh, you know. Uh, now we don't have the Soviet Union. We have the wokists uh, or the uh, Trumpists or, uh, or or the crypto wokes or <laughs> well, I don't know. There's so many different permutations of the stuff now. Um, you know, we just assume bad faith in each other. And, uh, I, and I, and I don't know what the road forward is as a, as a country or set of countries to, uh, to fix that. I usually, I usually try to, you know, tell people to assume good faith. doesn't mean you can't criticize what people are, you know, saying or doing, uh, but to assume good faith in most situations, there are assholes out there. I'm not going to say everybody's a great person, you know, and that everybody's acting in good faith. I, I do know that some people are acting in bad faith, but if we start by assuming good faith, I think that helps a lot of these dialogues move forward more positively than, uh, than what we're doing now. I mean, I, I think we, we can all look around saying what we're doing now is not working out well. You know, people are not happy. We're not functioning well. Our governments are not functioning well. This, this can't go on. So we need to try something different. Uh, being angrier is probably not going to be the thing that's going to fix it. So how do we <laughs> how become less angry at each other and can that help? Yeah. Um, I have a really long list of things that I was going to ask you about, but I don't think we're going to get to them. Okay. Um, but I do want to ask one uh, final question, um, which is about the Goldwater Rule. Um, which I, I know you're not bound by because you're not a psychiatrist, and it's about um, it's a I guess a self-imposed standard, which is that psychiatrists should not comment on the mental health of people they have not personally treated, mm -hmm. and obviously that means they can't comment on the mental health of individuals at all because you yeah. can't be commenting on the mental health of your your patients, uh, yeah. patient confidentiality, and. In your book, How Madness Has Shaped History, you make a very persuasive uh, case for the idea that the madness of, this is only part of the book, but part of the book makes a very persuasive case for the idea that the madness of specific individuals has had a disproportionately negative 
impact, um, how do you put it, the extreme behavior of a few outliers. And to what extent do you think that it's it would be helpful to think in terms of the mental health of the individuals involved? Yeah. I mean, so basically the, the Goldwater rule, you know, came up in psychiatry uh, resulting from a very specific circumstance in which a, um, I believe it was a presidential candidate, uh, Barry Goldwater. Um, there was a magazine article where a magazine surveyed a bunch of psychiatrists and some proportion of them said that he was nuts, basically, uh, and would be a bad candidate for president. And then Goldwater sued the magazine and won for, for libel. Um, and as a consequence, they basically said, you know, to psychiatrists, you know, stop with your frivolous, you know, political views that you're masking as psychiatrists. And somewhere that's kind of fair, you know, uh, you know, particularly as, you know, we should be very upfront and say that most psychiatrists and psychologists are liberals or progressives. So there certainly is some bias in there. Um, but on the other hand, you know, so I understand where it comes from. And I think, you know, for the, to some extent, there is this sense of, um, like in psychology, we actually don't have any like super set standard, but what kind of like the, you know, we kind of say is that, you know, if you're going to make a statement about a public figure, you need to be very clear about the evidence base, you know, from which you are speaking from, uh, and any particular potential biases you might have, you know, sort of going into that. Uh, so it's a little bit looser. We're given a little bit more leeway, if you will, um, in that kind of situation. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously the Goldwater rule ties your hands. You know, if you can't talk about someone until you've done a psychological evaluation on them, well, once you've done a psychological evaluation on them, then you're bound by confidentiality and can't talk about them anyway. So you can't talk about anybody. Um, and I'm not sure that that's where we want to end up necessarily, because in many situations, psychiatrists and psychologists may have real insight into the um, potentialities of a particular politician or ruler or government figure um, or whatever else. And so really the thing that others have argued and, and which I argue as well is that we can speak to the, you know, so what basically happens is public figures, and a lot of this revolved around Trump in the book, is they behave in public, right? They do a lot of behaviors in public. And by doing so, they give us evidence, you know, they give us data points um, that we can speak to uh, about the likely psychological characteristics of that individual, and then the likely outcomes of, you know, that person's, um, you know, reign of power or place in government or again, whatever you want to call it. So as long as we are clear that we are speaking from, you know, an observation of their public behavior, um, that it can in some situations be valuable for psychologists and psychiatrists to be able to speak to certain government leaders and say like this, this person may you know, spiral into a disaster, you know, and this, we may really want to think about whether this person really is well suited uh, for the job at, at, at hand. And I think that can be a service uh, to the public for us to be able to do that. But of course there are a number of caveats that, you know, but we have to do so speaking from data, not our own emotions you know, so we have to be willing to do it for the candidates that we voted for, as well as the candidates we didn't vote for. So uh, I've already shared that I did not vote for Trump uh, in uh, the past election. I will I will say up front, uh, I, I did vote for Biden, 
But at this point, I have my own concerns about Biden's uh, ability as, as president uh, at this point. So we do have to be willing to be sort of bipartisan in, uh, in some of this stuff and, and also recognize, are we making our evaluation because we have database concerns about how this person is behaving in public? Or are we making our opinion known because we're upset that our candidate didn't get voted in, you know, and that sort of thing. So we always have to kind of be observant of where we're coming from. And again, acknowledging that psychiatry and psychology already is pretty liberally biased um, that. But, you know, with those caveats, I think there are dangers in saying that we can never speak, you know, when we really have some alarm about a particular candidate. Um, and again, I, I was sort of referring to this in the context of Trump, who I think was pretty alarming, um, you know, and not being able to do that, I think, withholds value inf- valuable information from the general public that they may be able to use when it comes time for them to vote. And uh, so, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a complicated, nuanced issue. Obviously, there, is, it's, uh, there are pros and cons in either direction. Um, and it's something that we certainly should approach with a great degree of caution and not be, again, not make these public statements as professionals when we're emotional. Um, but on the other hand, remaining entirely silent, I don't think that's the right outcome either uh, in this situation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Chris, is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, no, I think I think this has been a lot of fun. I've, I've had a great time. I think we've covered a lot of great topics, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, people will be inspired to to buy one of my books, help put my kid through college. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, people can follow me. I have a website. It's just my name, ChristopherJFerguson.com. Not very original. Mm-hmm. But well, pop that in the show notes. Excellent. And thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Well, thanks for having me on today. This has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate uh, you thinking of me. It's been my pleasure. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for T PC Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.